today, when I woke up, it felt like the first day of spring, and uh, all in the spirit of spring. We have some old people in the room today who are <laughs> unfortunately leaving us, but we also have some new people in the room uh, who might be joining us, but that's very exciting. And uh, in that sense, we also have the most appropriate speaker that we can have today, because I want to welcome you to my mother, <laughs> my <laughs> academic mother. <laughs> And uh, Barbara Piss was my supervisor. Uh, a year ago, we had Robert Clemens, uh, the PhD supervisor of Bert, and we called him the godfather of the Hartwaldings lab. And I think if he is the godfather, it's only appropriate to call you the godmother uh, of the Hartwaldings lab, uh, because your, your work on political psychology, which I was completely unfamiliar with until I met you, uh, has been an inspiration uh, for all of us here in the room. And so I'm really happy that we have you here uh, to talk, I assume, about your new, uh, uh, what's it, the consolidator of Vichy? Consolidator, yeah. She gets so many grants, I guess. Uh, yeah, you, so you, uh, Barbara has a very nice, this Veni Vidi consolidator. <laughs> it's a very famous saying, uh, set of grants, and she's currently a, a professor at Utrecht University. Without uh, delaying any further, I'm going to give the floor to you. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks to everyone. It's really uh, a pleasure to be here um, and to indeed uh, talk about uh, this project. Uh, this ERC project has started uh, last February, uh, so it's only been going for um, uh, for one month. And at, as of uh, um, well, this moment, I'm still the only person working on it. So I will be hiring uh, more people uh, in the course of the of the spring, and then after the summer, there will be a whole team of people working on it. Um, uh, and here, I will does not present a lot of findings, so there are not a lot of findings yet. So compared to a lot of talks uh, here at the whole politics lab, there will be uh, uh, a lot of ideas, I would say, uh, and hopefully uh, findings will come later. Uh, and this ERC project uh, is, is entitled uh, Politicians Under Radical Uncertainty with the acronym uh, RADIANCE. And uh, the, the top question here, uh, how do politicians respond to different types of uncertain phenomena? is actually the main question that this project uh, addresses. Uh, so what we aim to do in this project is to, uh, uh, well, obtain all kinds of uh, new uh, empirical data on how politicians, different types of politicians, so these can be uh, ministers, members of parliament, uh, local politicians uh, in four countries that, uh, well, I theorize to have different opportunities and constraints for dealing with uncertainty. So these are the Netherlands, Germany, the US and the United Kingdom. And we want to figure out what are the responses that are being used to different types of uncertainty, more about those uh, uh, in a minute. Uh, and we will look at uh, uh, to what extent these responses are shaped by the person personal characteristics of uh, politicians as uh, things like personality. So then we're really in the, in the well, political psychology uh, realm, but also uh, how this is shaped by institutional conditions. And so that's more the, you could say, traditional political science uh, angle. And in this uh, talk, I will uh, focus on what I think uh, is going to be really a core foundation of the project. Uh, and that is a uh, conceptual map, which uh, responses to uncertainty that I have uh, developed uh, for the proposal and that we will expand uh, throughout the project. Uh, Gijs, how do I go to a different uh, sit down? No, uh, to the side. Uh, At least uh, I was a little bit slow. Before. 
Hello. Well, and then again, that's a, I think it was me actually. But yeah, okay. that is me. Um, <laughs> so, a first question, uh, maybe to delve a bit into, is why this focus on uncertainty? And when I talk to people about this project and very often sort of the first response is, okay, uncertainty, what is it about uncertainty that triggers you? Why would you want to spend uh, at least five years studying it? And there's always been uncertainty and uh, particularly when you think of politicians having to make judgments and decisions and then and that having to do this under conditions of uncertainty is by definition uh, almost always the case. And so why, uh, why put this central and, and why uh, is it necessary uh, to focus on that? And that has to do with, I think, uh, are some uh, problems in the field that are worth uh, addressing. And the first one is that uh, despite uh, the omnipresence of uncertainty, and we can discuss whether uncertainty has indeed arisen uh, over the past decades, as some uh, would argue that it actually has, or whether this is not uh, necessarily the case, but irrespective of the answer to that question, what we don't have is theory on, uh, uh, so the, on what I call a radical uncertainty. And here I follow a distinction by King and uh, Kay, who distinguish radical uncertainty from resolvable uncertainty. Uh, and uh, radical uncertainty are those situations uh, that are uh, unknown, but also unknowable. So they're characterized by ambiguity, by vagueness, so if you think of the COVID-19 pandemic, when it has just started, and that was really an example of radical uncertainty. So if you don't then ask, okay, what will happen? The sort of an, the honest answer would be, well, we simply don't know. And on the other end, uh, you have resolvable uncertainty. And that is uncertainty that if you have more information or more knowledge, then the uncertainty will disappear. And so for instance, when the Omicron variant of the virus emerged, and then it was a question, it was an, uh, uncertain whether vaccines would protect against this variant, but at some point uh, we knew uh, whether they did or whether they didn't, so the uncertainty was uh, resolved. And I would argue that a lot of the theories that are out there, uh, be it in uh, political psychology, be it in political behavior, be it in international relations, have a lot to say about resolvable uncertainty, but not so much about this radical uncertainty. So actually, we lack theory on this radical uncertainty, on responses to, uh, to this type of uncertainty and how that differs or not uh, from responses uh, to resolvable uncertainty. And I would argue that it matters uh, whether, whether these responses are the same or different. And so think of uh, a possible response to uncertainty. So this is one of the responses from this conceptual map and what I've labeled comprehensive. And so this is an approach uh, that is in line with sort of what a rationalist uh, would do where you collect a lot, of, <laughs> a lot of material and you really want to uh, address this uncertainty uh, hands-on using all available means. Well, this might be a very effective uh, strategy if you are dealing uh, with resolvable uncertainty, but by definition, it won't be when you're dealing with radical uncertainty. And so if you use this, uh, if you uh, display this response and you 
uh, if you uh, indicate this as if to if it's going to actually work, um, then, for instance, voters can be very disappointed because it is very likely that it will be unsuccessful. So that is the first problem. We lack theory and having and ending up with a theory of how politicians deal with these different types of uncertainty is the end point uh, of this project. And then uh, one other thing that needs to be done in order to get there is to obtain uh, more data uh, on politicians themselves. So we know uh, quite a lot about politicians. I mean, there are many people here in the room who know a lot about them, but we don't have that much direct data. So uh, one of the aims of this project is to collect uh, this data from politicians themselves by means of survey experiments and, uh, and interviews. And a third uh, related, pro uh, related problem is empirical evidence. So, of course, we need to analyze uh, this data. And in addition to this type of uh, direct data that will be collected, we will also collect a lot of indirect uh, data, uh, for instance, uh, uh, speeches and other observational uh, material to, to really know uh, how these uh, individual factors, as well as these institutional factors, uh, affect uh, uncertainty. And next slide, please. Yes. So I already uh, <laughs> a bit the differences between radical and uh, resolvable uncertainty. Uh, this figure gives a bit more. Uh, this this displays it in an uh, in an overview. And here, uh, these types of uncertainty are displayed as qualitatively uh, distinct. And analytically, it is also useful to think about it because uh, the degree of radicalness or the degree of resolvableness of uncertainty affects uh, the type of responses that uh, you can expect. Uh, but in practice, uh, it's very hard to disentangle the two. So they're more like two ends of a, of a continuum red, rather than really uh, two distinct uh, uh, states. And you can also move from radical uncertainty to resolvable uncertainty over time. So the same phenomenon that take the COVID-19 pandemic can at one point uh, be characterized by radical uncertainty, but at another point uh, by resolvable uncertainty. And also the other way around, and that is what this, uh, this arrow indicates. So you can have a situation that seems resolvably uncertain, but it turns out that all the uh, additional information, all the material that is collected about this phenomenon, that you actually cannot really do anything uh, about it. So that uh, it may seem like a situation that is characterized by resolvable uncertainty, but in fact, uh, you have uh, radical uncertainty. Next slide. Yes. Oh, sorry. That's fine. So this is then the preliminary conceptual map uh, of responses. Well, I already mentioned uh, comprehensive, so using all available means to address the uncertain phenomena. Another uh, response that we uh, might see or likely to see is using uh, heuristics, so cognitive uh, rules of thumb uh, to, uh, um, uh, to engage in judgment and decision-making under uncertainty. And so, for instance, look at what a neighboring country is doing and simply uh, copying that. Uh, avoidance uh, means that you either ignore the uh, phenomenon about there, which there is uncertainty or assume away the uncertainty that exists. And exploitative uh, means that you use the uh, uncertain phenomenon, uh, well, for your own political gains. And what you can see is that these, uh, this is not a typology, so that is also why I displayed it in this, well, little bit 
maybe unusual uh, fashion. And so for instance, exploitative can be combined uh, with one of the other um, responses. And well, I have to think some more about that, but uh, one way maybe to think about this is that uh, exploitative is about uh, the why. So how, why do you display a particular uh, a response? So for instance, you might avoid a uncertain phenomena because you want to gain from it uh, politically. And the other three responses are more about the what uh, that is being done. Well, there are also empty uh, tiles available, and that is because it's very unlikely that these are the only uh, responses that are out there. So the idea is to uh, to really look at uh, well what politicians are doing and to expand uh, this conceptual map. Uh, and these um, responses thus far are mostly cognitive responses, but you can also imagine that there can be all kind of other uh, responses at play as well, for instance, uh, relating to affiliation uh, to others. So let me say a bit more about uh, each of them. Yes, thanks. And um, yes. Um, so comprehensive. Well, uh, and this is according to some had uh, the golden standard and, and some of the questions I also got about this was okay, but is this not what we normatively uh, should do? Uh, this is what you would uh, uh, want uh, decision makers to do uh, according to some kind of rational uh, standard. You would want decision making uh, to be based on uh, on all material that is available on, on everything. So is this not what you should do with all other responses being uh, suboptimal uh, by definition? Um, well, I already suggested uh, that this is not necessarily the case because it really depends on the type of uncertain phenomena that you are dealing with. And also, if you want to collect uh, a lot of new material, a lot of new evidence, have maybe a committee working on it, um, assessing all kinds of options that are available, that is a very time consuming uh, project. So if you need a fast response, uh, then this also uh, will not necessarily be the best one. Next one. Uh, heuristics. Um, there is evidence uh, that we indeed see that politicians, like the rest of us, I would say, uh, also use heuristics in their judgment and uh, decision making. But there's also really a lot uh, that we don't know. And so based on the literature, it is likely that uh, heuristics from the uh, heuristics and biases uh, tradition uh, will be displayed in both types of uncertainty. But it could also be uh, that we see heuristics that come from the so-called fast and frugal approach, where uh, using heuristics is not necessarily seen as a bias, but can actually be a prudent strategy that is very um, effective uh, in the face of, for instance, complexity and high levels of uncertainty. Uh, so there are many open questions uh, that we are going to intend uh, to answer. Well, maybe to give another example uh, of using heuristics again in the COVID uh, context, and what you've seen is that in many European countries at the start of the pandemic, uh, the virus was uh, responded to uh, as if it was a flu uh, pandemic, yeah, because uh, the protocols and, and uh, all kind of books were available on how to deal with a flu pandemic. 
You saw that in, for instance, Africa, where they had experience with the Ebola virus, they responded to it as if it was uh, Ebola. And in uh, Asian countries, you saw that it was responded to as if it was uh, a SARS pandemic. So then uh, you don't know what to do. So what you do is you make use of, uh, well, what, what is out there and, and move forward, which may not necessarily be uh, the best strategy. The strategy uh, avoidance, uh, one more, yes, uh, comes in, uh, uh, in two variants. Uh, I'm not sure whether these are sub-variants of the same type or whether they're actually uh, a different uh, type of responses. Uh, the first uh, uh, sub-variant, if you will, uh, is that you ignore uh, the phenomenon altogether. And this is something what you can do when the topic is not yet on the political agenda. And so for a long time, uh, this was probably uh, the case with climate change. And you could simply ignore, ignore that there was something like climate change uh, and where we know a lot about uh, what will is likely to happen, but about which there's also a lot of uncertainty. Well, at the moment, it is not possible anymore to ignore uh, that, that phenomenon altogether. Uh, what might be possible and what I think what you also are seeing happening is because the focus is now so much on uh, climate uh, mitigation. And so uh, all the plans that are uh, well, also in the context of the, uh, of the recent elections that are being discussed uh, are climate mitigation uh, strategies that people agree or, or don't agree with. But there is very little attention to climate adaptation, which uh, poses also a lot of uncertainty and complicates decision making uh, even further, but doesn't seem uh, really on the agenda uh, yet, uh, politically speaking. The second variant is that you assume away uncertainty, and this means that you uh, act as if or, or present a uh, radical uncertain phenomena as if it is uh, resolvably uncertain, which I would say is what Rutte did uh, in 2020, uh, very early on uh, in, the, in the pandemic, when he stated that you have to make 100% of the decisions with 50% of the knowledge. So here he takes a phenomenon that at the time was radically uncertain and, well, suggests that, well, you can attach numbers to it, so you... Uh, it is a resolvably uncertain uh, situation, thereby downplaying the complexity uh, that they were currently facing, which can have uh, detrimental effects. Uh, another uh, option would be is that you pretend that something is not uncertain at all, but that it is certain. So that is something that you see less often, but that can also happen. And that may involve, which is also the case with the first uh, variant, uh, using misinformation, so just misinforming either other politicians uh, or the public. Well, the last one, um, exploitative. Uh, well, this is something that, uh, for instance, uh, leaders like uh, Trump uh, have done uh, uh, quite a bit, uh, for instance, during the, the COVID pandemic, where they exploited uh, the uncertainty that existed to push through all kinds of things uh, that benefited them uh, politically. Uh, but more recently, also uh, COVID-related, uh, well, you may have uh, uh, seen it at all kind of, uh, uh, well, all kind of a whole bunch of, uh, of app messages of the former Minister of Health um, in the UK, uh, Hancock, 
were uh, exposed and didn't really paint a very positive picture, I would say, uh, of him. It's uh, called uh, the COVID lockdown files uh, in the UK. And here uh, you see an example of what I think very well illustrates uh, this idea of exploitation, where a minister explicitly states um, that uh, he wants to exploit a new variant of the virus uh, to frighten the pants of the public and thereby uh, meet uh, his own political objectives. Well, these are, you could say, negative uh, ways, I think, that most of us agree uh, in which you can exploit uh, uncertainty. And I think the, the current terminology exploitative is also not very positive, so it is fitting. But uh, you can also uh, exploit uncertainty to get good things done. So that is sort of exploiting for good policy. So that might also be a similar variant. So if there's something that you really want to get on the political agenda, but which is difficult, not so much for your own uh, political gain, but because you really uh, think it is uh, it is valuable, then uh, it can, uh, uncertainty can also uh, present an opportunity to get these good policy uh, effects done. So where to go from here? Well, this uh, this map uh, serves as a basis, but of course, uh, well, more needs to be done with it. Uh, the first step in the in the project consists of an identifying and, and mapping exercise, whereby uh, the idea is to first get an overview of uh, a whole bunch of uh, well of phenomena that are either radically or resolvably uncertain or at different points in time, um, and to have uh, to have sort of case summaries of these. So these would be an exercise uh, at a macro level. And the idea of the project is to go back to uh, well, at the latest, uh, the mid 90s. So there's a whole potential range of, uh, of topics uh, that we might focus on. And this will be then the starting point uh, for the second step. And that is to see how all these uh, well, phenomena that we see, what can we say about um, politicians first perceived uncertainty? And so you have all these phenomena that uh, whether you agree with such terminology of or, or not come with some objective degree of uncertainty, and for instance, about what will happen. But this objective uncertainty can be very high when the perceived uncertainty is very low, and for instance, because it's a topic uh, that is politically absolutely not salient, so uh, it's not likely to lose your votes, for instance. Uh, or the other way around. Uh, so a first or one of the work packages uh, will focus on this perceived uncertainty. And then in another uh, work package, we will continue with these uh, responses and, uh, and carefully uh, examine well, all, the, uh, all the phenomena that we have identified and try to get a good overview of the type of behavioral responses that we actually see, which will then inform uh, the next uh, parts of the project where we will, uh, among other things, collect these uh, direct data uh, from the politicians themselves. And the first part of the project will mostly be based on, uh, well, on, on some, well, you could say not intense uh, a case type of analysis. And uh, the second uh, part will mostly be based on some variant of uh, text analysis, uh, uh, if possible. Yes. 
Okay, that was it. What I wanted to say about these, uh, well, about this project uh, thus far. I'm very happy to answer all kinds of questions, also more broadly about the project. And well, I already mentioned it, but let me advertise it uh, some more. Uh, vacancies will be will be out, I think, somewhere in April. So please keep a lookout. Uh, well, either maybe for yourself, but also for for others. And um, thanks a lot. Right. Thanks, Barbara. Uh, we have uh, a good amount of time for questions, so uh, I thought we could do questions also online. Online as well, yes, for sure. <laughs> okay, uh, Anna, 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 Anna. Uh, thanks a lot for your presentation. It was very interesting. Um, earlier on, you mentioned that you were connected to a new development in the UK and the US. And I wonder why you decided to focus on those weird uh, countries. Yeah. Uh, that, that's a that's a good question. Um, well, this uh, uh, I I submitted this ERC project uh, uh, well before. So well, I I did get quite some grants, but I also didn't get quite some grants. Uh, well, submitting for it, um, and my initial idea was even to have. You might say an even more narrow uh, selection of countries, and the, the reason behind that was that uh, I my aim is to develop a theory, so I wanted to have uh, countries that are very much alike, so that you can control for as much uh, variation as possible. So the initial plan was to focus on the Netherlands, Belgium, and Denmark, but then I got mm -hmm. feedback that. Uh, these countries are way too similar, seem way too much like a convenience uh, sample, and there were severe doubts uh, about uh, possible generalizability. Uh, so I, well, I, I could see uh, why why people might think that. So I decided indeed to expand it, but I still wanted to keep the variation quite limited. So. I did think about uh, uh, also focusing, for instance, on, uh, on Eastern European countries or Southern European countries, but then uh, you, there, there comes all kinds of other variation that on the one hand is super interesting, for instance, uh, regarding uh, state capacity, or if you have Eastern Europe uh, had a, the communist past, and that might influence how uh, how politicians respond to uncertainty, but it also means that there are even way more uh, moving uh, uh, moving parts. So I decided uh, not to do that, and uh, well, hopefully something comes out of this project on which uh, uh, on which we can uh, build further. And and there are some people um, uh, around me that would be interested to well to see how um, a theory would travel also to other uh, countries at some point. So I hope that it will uh, get to that. Thank you. Great. Okay. Thanks, Walter. Yeah. yeah um, thanks for the presentation, and uh, I, uh, I think this is going to be really interesting. And and um, so you you explained uh, sort of the first step in the project, how, how you want to develop this cognitive map of different types of responses. And I, I see the, the logic and, and also why that would be interesting. But I would want would be interested also to hear a bit more about what would come after. Mm -hmm. Are you, do you want to explain under which conditions people um, 
uh, take different routes or uh, or do you also want to look at the consequences of, of different ways of dealing with uncertainty or what what's next yeah i, I have a slide uh, somewhere with the structure uh, let me uh, if it's it was too quick uh, that's this one um that gives an gives an overview of the project uh, as a whole so um the identify and mapping so that is what i uh, well, what i just mentioned and the conceptual map uh, will be behind uh, a large chunk of, of the empirical part of the project and so the perceived uncertainty is a bit uh, a bit separate so that will make use of the insights uh, of this first work package but other than that operates uh, a bit as a standalone project but the idea is indeed uh, to look at different things uh, subsequently so um, in this work package uh, we will do survey experiments both uh, with national level politicians uh, uh, hopefully uh, both in the Netherlands uh, and the UK uh, also with interviews so that will uh, well will enable us to get more insight in when exactly our specific uh, responses used, uh, get more insight on how they deal with uncertainty and uh, these interviews will also allow to go a bit more in-depth in uh, what is behind it and get more sort of flesh on the bones. Uh, there will also be um, uh, survey experiments with local politicians in all four countries, but these will, won't include an interview part so that and there, uh, I hope that we will get at these uh, the effects of these uh, individual and institutional factors, but not so much the and uh, and really a, a in-depth, comprehensive uh, picture. Uh, this uh, sub package focus work package focuses on which combination of conditions leads to the particular response. So when do you see uh, that, for instance, politicians uh, use a comprehensive response when they get uh, go for heuristics. So this allows us also to test, um, uh, well, all kind of theories that are out there. For instance, how when the use of heuristics is more or less likely, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, and this uh, work package will look at uh, more in-depth at the mechanism from an uncertain phenomena to a particular outcome. Uh, so depending a little bit on what comes out here, uh, the idea is to select a, a variety of both radical and uh, resolvable uncertain phenomena and to really uh, go more in-depth into how, what is then happening. So what are the responses, but also what are the effects of the responses? So those won't figure so much in, um, uh, in these work packages, uh, but they are part of the, of the final work package. And then the idea is that everything comes together in uh, the theory at the end. The effects of response, what kind of outcome variables are you thinking of? Yeah, it, it, it also depends a bit on the specific, uh, on, on the specific focus, but I, uh, things you can think about are um, the effectiveness of problem solving. So had to what to what extent uh, do you actually see that there is uh, and that, that particular goals um, uh, that are also met, uh, but you can also think about uh, whether there's uh, well uh, trust among voters or uh, legitimacy outcomes. So it depends a little bit on what is focused on. So if it's something like COVID, then, then maybe the, the legitimacy uh, would be less interesting, but maybe 
uh, if the focus would be more on topics relating to, say, climate change, uh, that might be a very interesting one, uh, given that you see that there are so many different takes on uh, on, on what would be a, uh, well, uh, an, a good response uh, by politicians. First of all, I like the conceptual approach that you have. Um, I was wondering, from what I got, um, since, for example, you mentioned the exploitative strategy, it's it doesn't seem to be necessarily negative, right? Mm -hmm. So just because something is certain, it doesn't mean that it's necessarily a threat. And if a politician could see it as an instrument, for example, you know, it, it could become highly positive. Mm -hmm. So how do you comprehend this? And are you uh, intending on using some form of distinction between positive, negative, neutral uh, uncertainty? Yeah, that's that's a very good question, and that is indeed something that um, uh, well, that before also the other start, I, I would need to give uh, uh, give some more thought. Um, uh, conceptually, probably uh, as I already alerted to, uh, the term exploitative doesn't really capture had uh, that good policy aspect, and well, that that's a bit of a side note, but that is, is sort of what um, in, in another uh, uh, topic on which I've done uh, quite some research uh, and guys as well on blame avoidance. Uh, you can also try to avoid blame to get good things done and had the label blame avoidance uh, doesn't really capture that so it has a very negative connotation but it's it's actually a political strategy that you can use for well whatever um so that is something that i would need to think uh, about more and also um uh, particularly uh how how you see this being applied uh in reality so I had to uh to give an example that is not about um exploitative um, the climate adaptation that doesn't seem to be uh, on the agenda uh, right now so hey there there has been a, a letter or multiple letters probably that is uh, that was sent by the uh, delta commissaris uh, to Parliament about uh, well a possible climate adaptation in relation to uh, to where uh, all had uh, this huge number of houses is going to be built and and they have this very interesting uh, I don't have that in the slides but they have a very interesting map where you can see the dots uh, where the big uh, the big housing uh, projects are being scheduled. Uh, and where it is uh, very likely uh, that is going to be very problematic in well less than 50 years time, which uh, if you're thinking of houses is, is not a super long time, but this is completely not on the radar. And you can also imagine why it's not because it is currently difficult enough as it is, you know, with the climate and the houses and everything. And if then, if there's also this whole <coughs> massive part of the Netherlands where you can build, then it becomes almost impossible. So uh, this uncertainty is, uh, you could say, either avoided or maybe it's just, you know, uh, uh, downplayed, okay, we're, we're not going to deal with this um, uh, right now, um, which may be an example of, uh, well, I, I think it would fit best under avoidance, but how to, to actually code that in a systematic manner and how it changes over time. I think that, that is really interesting and something to, well, to develop in, well, in, in this first part. Great. Thank you so much. Um, I have a question regarding, I think, the first question of your outlook looking forward. So how do you identify phenomena? And so here I was wondering if you could just talk a bit more about how do you actually like conceptualize phenomena? So where does an event, like a single event end and where does a phenomena like 
COVID yes. start. And related to that, I was wondering in your selection of these phenomena, um, I'm curious, is this purely driven through um, an analysis of what politicians perceive? Because like you, mm -hmm. you write a lot or talk a lot about like perceived uncertainty or whether um, you're also planning to inform this a bit more like uh, actually like real world data driven. So, you know, like thinking of early work, event prediction by Philip Schultz and sort of there are different event categories that are more predictable mm -hmm. than other things. Social unrest, for instance, or it's a lot harder to predict, like a COVID outbreak, I guess. Yeah. So, um, I like, yeah, maybe just on these two things. So, what's a phenomenon? Yeah. And then also, are you selecting those based on real world data? Yeah, it, it, uh, it, it's hard to give an, an exact uh, answer uh, yet, but the idea is to, uh, to make use of at least two sources to get sort of a first cut at potential. Uh, potential uh, topics to look into, uh, but it also uh, it will also depend on uh, on who I will hire and what their sort of preferences and uh, um, uh, and and interests are. So uh, climate change uh, would make a lot of sense uh, to focus on, but if there's no one uh, hired that has any affinity with this topic, and I'm also not an expert on that, then it would be really hard uh, to do that. Uh, digitalization is another topic that over time has some super interesting uh, variation, but that also requires some specific uh, expertise that, that you may or may not want, want to develop. Um, but this is um, um, helpful, at least, to figuring out where to start uh, looking. So this is the World Uncertainty Index. And this is an index that is based on the use of the word uncertain or uncertainty or some variance in, um, uh, in reports. Um, and, well, there is a lot of uh, things you can, um, well, you can say that, that what might be wrong with this uh, with this measure, but at least what it indicates is when uh, this index, and this is at the level of the world, but there's also for individual countries, when it spikes, uh, that you do see that there are beginnings of specific phenomena, uh, Brexit, uh, the war in Ukraine, the Omicron variant, uh, the sovereign debt crisis in Europe. So this can help to figure out, okay, where do we see these spikes? Does this also, if we go more in-depth into these particular uh, uh, topics in these particular issues, do we then indeed see that uh, it's either radical or resolvable uncertain? And how does this change uh, over time? So uh, a lot of these uh, phenomena are not instances, uh, but they they well, develop over time May uh, and, and uncertainty may increase again. But since... Uh, I also want to connect it to data that is more, you know, precisely at one point in time, you need to have a, a more systematic overview of that. So this is um, uh, used, you could say, uh, for uh, so-called salient things, and these are things that are on the agenda. Uh, but the idea is not to have a, a project that is about uh, crises, these are mostly crises, but it is also about normal politics that, yeah, that, that, can, um, uh, that can be uh, related to uncertainty. And, therefore, and for that, I want to use the, um, uh, the code book of the Comparative Agenda uh, Project. So that has uh, 200 or so codes of all kinds of issues. And just you know, going over that code book and seeing, okay, these are topics that could be potentially on the agenda 
uh, are they salient, not salient? Uh, are they uh, interesting to look at from either a theoretical or you know, a curiosity-driven uh, uh, perspective? So that will be um, the first step. So I think that there are a, a couple of logical candidates, but to, uh, to really get a, a overview that we can also effectively use in the rest of the project is also uh, going to be an empirical challenge. Yeah, thanks. Uh, very interesting uh, project. I was wondering about, you, you are focusing on responses by uh, politicians, right? And you already talked a little bit about uh, the differences, institutional and, and individual level differences. But to what extent do you also distinguish different types of politicians? And I mean, politicians, of course, are um, they are decision makers, they mm -hmm. are policy makers, but they're also representatives and they're campaigning all the time. And you cannot, of course, really separate those two, mm -hmm. but they are really different things. So making a decision about how to campaign on an issue is very different from making a decision as a minister, for yeah. instance. Mm -hmm. So to what extent are you going, uh, and is it possible to distinguish be between the two? That's my first question. And the second one is <laughs> about uncertainty. You, you, you presented um, the uh, radical and the resolvable uncertainty types. Mm -hmm. Are they uh, differences really in kind or is it more a matter of degrees? Because when you mentioned the, the example of COVID, I was thinking, yeah, we don't know about it uh, when the when the, the the virus hit us, right? Uh, we, we we it was it was also not knowable, but over time it was knowable, right? Mm -hmm. Later on, and for uh, and and the other example of the Omicron virus, it was also not knowable at that point, but later on it was. So, to what extent is it not more about a time issue and a matter mm -hmm. of degree instead of really a difference in kind? Um, yeah, thanks. Um, about uh, the types of, uh, of politicians, well, there are, of course, all kinds of uh, distinctions that you can, be, like, that you can make uh, between politicians. So uh, the idea is to deal with that in the project uh, in a number of ways. So in the, the part of the project uh, where we will collect uh, uh, this data by means of survey experiments, we will mostly look at, um, uh, at differences uh, across types of politicians, uh, if you will. So for instance, uh, politicians from opposition parties or from the government, uh, executive, uh, legislative, uh, but also uh, their, their traits as humans. Yeah? So for instance, uh, personality. Uh, in the interview parts, um, it will be possible to delve more in sort of the specifics. And then uh, you can imagine that things such as, uh, uh, well, that, that are harder to grasp in, in a comparative fashion uh, might emerge there. So uh, depending on what comes out, uh, that might be something to explore uh, further, but it's more difficult to do everything systematically also because, well, such a survey by definition needs to be short because otherwise, uh, uh, it will be uh, hard to get enough uh, people uh, to actually uh, respond. Um, and with the in-kind and in-degree, in uh, I think if you have the, um, I, I mentioned it's, uh, the, you can see it as a, as a continuum and true endpoints, um, I would say that those are really qualitatively different uh, things. But if you have the true endpoint of radical uncertainty, then you're in the realm of what are 
uh, sometimes called unknown unknowns. So the things we don't know, we don't know. Well, empirically studying those is just impossible. So I'm not going to do that. <laughs> so there are unknowns, unknowns that at some point become known unknowns. Well, then you can study them. So that is um, that is, uh, where where the project empirically starts. And at the other other end, as some might say, yeah, for instance, uh, in economics, people sometimes say, well, there's not really uh, um, and the, the, what I would call uh, resolvable uncertainty is just uh, risk. Uh, has, so that would then be a qualitatively uh, uh, also different state. But indeed, you can over time have variation uh, from radical uncertainty to resolvable uh, uncertainty. Uh, but not all radical uncertainty becomes resolvable. Uh, it can also go the other way around. So it would be interesting <coughs> to see also about these uh, phenomena we, we also don't know that much about them i mean there's uh, there's a lot of literature on, uh, on on crisis management and crisis decision making but that literature focuses mostly on okay what is happening in a crisis how how is this crisis managed sort of practically but not so much what do politicians actually do so uncertainty is a key uh, element of a crisis, but it's not the only one. And the focus is very different uh, from what I'm doing here, I would say. Thanks, you have a question. Yeah, um, I, um, I want to talk about certainty and uncertainty as, as, as sort of a dynamic product of the relationship between voters and politicians. And, and so I, I wonder how you see this because I can I can see a situation where a politician sees uh, is able to estimate the uncertainty or or not, but that what they say public is going to be different because they're going to try to adapt themselves to what they think the electorate knows. Mm -hmm. So. Um, how are you going to try and capture this dynamic relationship? Um, so it, it's an interesting question, and and probably, but but and we don't know that. I would say that's an empirical question still. Um, and the the assumption often is that people are uh, uncertainty uh, averse, so dislike uncertainty, which may indeed uh, lead politicians to pretend that they're more certain than they actually are. So if you if you come across as well, I don't know, and it can go left or right, then you know that's. People don't necessarily want that, um, but how they they take that into account uh, in their responses, that's, of course, an, a very interesting question. And I can imagine that, um, that these survey experiments that also have the interview part allow to, uh, to ask about the why. So you have the, 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 the survey part where they, for instance, see some vignettes and then as a as a question, you can ask, okay, why uh, did you opt for this particular uh, for this particular answer, which then would be uh, a possible uh, response, uh, and why, and then uh, potentially uh, things such as, well, I think that my voters think like this, or I I don't uh, I couldn't get away with something else, or and that might emerge uh, there. I think that to um, uh, to do that. Earlier in the part in, in the project would be quite difficult, but maybe uh, depending a bit on on the specific uh, phenomena 
we are going to look into. If there's already a lot of uh, research done on such a topic, it may be that we can build on, on what is already there, but it's hard to say, I would say, at this point. Um, Barbara, I'm going to now uh, use my role as the chair to ask you a question. Um, the nice thing about uh, seeing a project in the early stages is that you can really develop uh, uh, additional work packages. and yes. <laughs> So I had one idea. Uh, maybe it's actually not a great work that we should have, but but so there's there's some literature now and and also some real life observation that is also what I really like about listening to you. Like you you really uh, grapple with the complexities of politics, and one of the things that you do see emerge is that quite a few politicians struggle with mental health uh, problems, and that is being related to uh, to work pressure. Uh, could one of the uh, could could one of if if this line goes up of radical uncertainty. It's a pretty shitty job to be in a constant state of crisis, right? And so, so neuroscientists talk about uh, that people want to be in a homeostatic stage, right? They want to just be calm and relaxed. And if you're constantly under pressure, uh, would would then uh, this 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 state of un radical uncertainty not be have have all sorts of detrimental effects on politicians themselves? And would that be something uh, worth studying? Yeah, I think that's really a, a super interesting uh, question. Um, I'm not sure that it's actually possible to also include that in this project. But what I can imagine is that um, uh, is, is, is that, hey, that uh, at, particularly over time, you see that there is going to be a, a shift in the type of people who want to be in politics. And then particularly, uh, I would say at the national level, uh, maybe not so much in the in the local level, so that you see a self-selection of, well, and let's say Rutte type of people who seem to sort of uh, almost get energy out of, uh, of a crisis and, and, and keep on going. And people who, like me, <laughs> Uh, and I think many people would indeed think, "Oh my God, this is not," uh, and that you think this this I I, I didn't want to go in politics uh, in the first place, yeah. but now I definitely don't want to get into politics. So, and then uh, if it is if it would be the case that over time you see that um, that sort of the the type of people self-selecting in politics becomes quite different from the general population, yeah. I think that. Can also be problematic from a uh, from well from a perspective of being a uh, well representative uh, of the population. Yeah, and, and so if I I may I give myself the opportunity. Uh, I think avoidance could be a very likely strategy here because this is my limited understanding of the neuroscience literature is actually when you cannot predict what's going to happen. So you get signals from your body, right? This is an individual story, but you get signals from your body that there's something going on, be physiologically or some sort. And then if you cannot predict it, then avoiding it, suppressing it is probably the most is the is the, the likely strategy people use. But that strategy is actually very unhealthy because mm -hmm. it, it keeps you, you you do have this still this sort of uncomfortableness. And that has been related to the mental health. So perhaps that, that would suggest that if one of the four strategies would be avoidance as a very common strategy for people who cannot do other things with that radical uncertainty. Yeah, very interesting idea. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm thinking of the example of uh, COVID. Uh, so I, I can think of two, Bolsonaro and Trump mm -hmm. basically 
denied that there was a problem. So that was uh, uh, that that was that strategy. But most people took it seriously, <laughs> and then probably used the cognitive or the the, um, the heuristics or the, the sort of cognitive shortcuts. Like, okay, we we try to manage it with what we know, but still under a lot of uncertainty that leads to completely different policies mm -hmm. in different countries, even if they use the same strategy. So is, isn't that maybe a problem then if later in the project you want to, want to study which strategy works best, mm -hmm. given that the same strategy could, could lead to completely different sort of outcomes because of the mm -hmm. Uncertainty on mm -hmm. the so if they have some so little factual knowledge of what actually is the problem, they the the actual policies will also be quite random, mm -hmm. <laughs> even if they use the same strategy to deal with it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're right that that this can become an empirical mess, uh, <laughs> if you will. Uh, and, but, the, but that also relates, I think, to to also a, a conceptual challenge, or or maybe it's a theoretical challenge. Uh, what is best, and um, and and if you speak in the context of politics, best uh, can also depend on where you stand uh, politically. Yeah, for one political actor, one outcome may be the best outcome for another; it may be the nightmare. Um, so here, it would be important. Uh, to, to really specify clearly um, how indeed this is going to be assessed. So again, to, to take uh, the Netherlands as an example, for a long time, uh, the, the main goal of, um, uh, well, of, of what the government did was uh, to keep um, the, uh, the, the, most, uh, the most vulnerable uh, people in society safe and make sure that there was uh, still enough uh, I see capacity, and, and that, that was uh, if if you manage to do that, then you are doing uh, maybe not best, but at least then you're meeting uh, your goal. In quite a lot of other countries, yeah, they they had similar uh, similar aims. So that would be one way uh, to deal with differences uh, that exist, but to still have some standard against uh, which uh, to assess it. And another would be uh, to look, for instance, at uh, well. Uh, at uh, well, if you see a lot of uh, differences, uh, a lot of shifts um, from the governing parties uh, to other parties, uh, that would be indication that many people are unhappy. But of course, that can also be uh, due to all kind of other things. So that brings again a whole bunch of uh, empirical challenges. So it is indeed difficult to really uh, to really uh, make that last step uh, to the effects, which is also why. <laughs> Uh, at least for developing the theory, the focus is on on the first part, and, mm. and that there's only uh, well, the, the work packages are not up here, but there's only one work package that really looks at the at the whole uh, circle. Um, but it can be interesting also again, probably in other work to uh, uh, to take that step once uh, the other material is in, and then you can indeed look at what would be very interesting uh, potential outcomes to look at. Yeah, yeah, question. Um, what are different sources of political uncertainty? And maybe related to that, is it always defined from the perspective of the phenomenon or also from the perspective of individuals? Because 
I feel that um, I would feel a sense of radical uncertainty as many other people wouldn't feel that same mm -hmm. kind of radical uncertainty, or maybe in an extreme case, you could also imagine people deliberately creating a sense of radical uncertainty either to avoid, for example, liability or to undermine the decisions that other people um, in the position of power uh, are making. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. So, what are the sources of, uh, of radical uncertainty? Um, uh, I think here the distinction between how, what, what I would label uh, objective uncertainty and, and this perceived uncertainty uh, is, an, is an interesting one. So, there are uh, some things that you could say, well, there is just, I mean, uh, no matter how you look at a phenomenon, uh, there's simply uncertainty about particular outcomes, about what is happening, who will be affected, these kind of things. Um, and that everyone, well, almost everyone, uh, let's put it like that, uh, would agree is the case. But then there is indeed how that is perceived. And that can have to do with, uh, can also have to do with, uh, with in a society at large, uh, how much uncertainty is uh, um, well, is is appreciated. Eh? So there are also cultural differences in how much uncertainty uh, is accepted uh, to begin with, which make, means that the sort of the acceptance of uncertainty uh, can differ. Uh, and indeed, uh, politicians can also themselves add uh, to a phenomenon's uh, uncertainty. So then they would be engaging in this exploitative, which then may have. Uh, actual effects, and that is something that in this work package that looks at the full full circle, we hopefully uh, will be able to uh, to get more in, insight on. Thank you very much. This is uh, the last uh, question uh, <laughs> because we're running out of time. Uh, I want to take the opportunity uh, to thank our sponsors first, <laughs> the uh, European Research Council (NWO) uh, Department of the, the, the Department of Political Science, Amsterdam School for Communication Research, and all the others that we've forgotten. Uh, I appreciate it. <laughs> it's very much appreciated. Um, next week, we're going to have a duo talk uh, because it's Graduate Friday again. Uh, Lina Butkeruit um, will talk about Beyond Lukenpresse, how politicians criticize and delegitimate. Legitimized. I hope you do better than I do. No, I okay. <laughs> <laughs> you have a week. <laughs> the media uh, and Sanne van Oosten. Uh, what do minority majority voters care about more? Shared identity or ideology? Uh, the week after that, we'll have Rosas, Rosa Sanchez Salgado from this department uh, to give a talk Emotions in European Politics. Can the sociology of emotions and political psychology combine forces? Curious. Uh, then on April 14th, so there's a minor break there, uh, we have David Amodio. Uh, his talk is titled Human Sources of Algorithmic Bias. And then 21st of April, we have Anke Munixma and her title is to be announced. And uh, there's more in May. Uh, we are uh, going to have uh, drinks uh, at five in Crea Cafe. Uh, so I really want to warmly invite everyone to, to come there. Barbara will be there as well, in case you have more questions about the project or maybe about the PhD position slash postdoc. Mm -hmm. Let's say just one more time. <laughs> and, uh, 
be more than happy to answer more questions. And uh, I just want to end with uh, thanking you, Barbara. This was a really uh, great, uh, fascinating project. I really look forward to how this will evolve. I, at this stage, I feel radically uncertain. <laughs> but morning, Thompson, confident that it would be great outputs. Uh, and so um, looking forward to, to this. Thank you very much. Thanks. Yeah, hot off. Yeah, I'll take that coffee on you. Yeah, I'll take that coffee on you.